I want to talk this morning about the intercession of Christ, his intercessory uh, ministry on our behalf. I was assigned this topic for a recent conference that I spoke at in Florida, and I thought this would be really good for Grace Life as well. And uh, although it deals with a text we looked at six years ago, I, I barely remember what we did six months ago, so it, it'll be good review for some of you. First John chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, all right, so I, I just want to look at this one verse, First John chapter 2, verse 1. It's a familiar text for most of you. Uh, you may even have it memorized, but sometimes... We miss, I think, the rich truths that are in the texts we know by heart because you think you know a text really well once you've memorized it. And the temptation then is to skim over it in your mind and, and not think about it as deeply as you might think about a less familiar passage that you're struggling to understand. And this is one of those important texts that is a thousand times deeper than most people ever realize. And so, I want just to narrow our focus today and look at this one verse very carefully. And by the way, although I'm singling out one verse, as always, the context here is important. And so I want to start reading with another even more familiar text, that text that's just two verses back, but it's separated by a chapter division. And so I'm going to start reading with 1 John 1, 9. But before I read it, I want to suggest to you that there is a, a, a crucial idea that ties these two texts together, and it's the theme of God's righteousness. The apostle is making the point here that God is righteous even in the act of forgiveness. The same point that Paul makes at the end of Romans 3, at the end of that long discourse about human depravity and the wickedness of the human heart and the universality of sin and the fallen evil that has infected the whole human race. And after he goes through two and a half chapters of that, relentlessly pressing home the truth that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Paul suddenly switches his tone abruptly and begins to talk about how Repentant sinners are freely justified, he says, as a gift by God's grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. comes out of nowhere in Romans 3. If you read it attentively, it's really a surprise that he goes from this long discussion about how evil we are to suddenly saying, but we can be justified as a gift of grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And in that context, at the end of Romans 3, Paul goes into great detail to explain how it is that God can forgive sins without compromising his own righteousness. He doesn't just overlook sin. He doesn't say it doesn't matter, but he forgives it because, Paul says, the Father put Christ, his Son, on display publicly as a propitiation through his blood, through faith, for a demonstration of his righteousness, Paul says, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. In other words, God has for centuries been passing over sins that can't truly be atoned for by the blood of bulls and goats. But now, he says, he's provided a full atonement for all those sins by the public sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And this was done, Paul says, for the demonstration of God's immutable righteousness 
at the present time so that he would be shown to be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so Paul's point, same as John's in our text, is that Christ has paid the price of sin, and therefore it is perfectly just, it is a righteous act for God to forgive their sins. He is just and faithful to forgive our sins, righteous and faithful. So I hope you've turned to 1 John 2 and and just look backward a few verses. We'll start with 1 John 1.9, and I'll read. It says, If we confess our sins... He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, I've always been intrigued by that phrase. We have an advocate with the Father, The old 1984 edition of the NIV translates it like this. We have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, which is what the expression means. It basically is using legal language. It makes it sound like Jesus is a lawyer, which may surprise you. Uh, Back when Don Green was here, you know, he was a lawyer before he became a seminary student. I used to make this joke that I thought there wouldn't be any lawyers in heaven, you know? He never thought it was a funny joke. (laughs) Lawyers never appreciate lawyer jokes. But I have no doubt, really, there will be lots of lawyers in heaven. I know not just Don Green, but several skilled, honorable attorneys whom I fully expect to enjoy sweet fellowship with in heaven. But the really good news is that none of them will be practicing law in heaven because there's only one practicing attorney in heaven, And that is the Lord himself, our advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, it's common in these postmodern times to hear people say that they don't like hearing legal terminology applied to the gospel or to the biblical doctrine of salvation. I get this a lot from people who say, well, you're using legal terminology. That's, That's really not appropriate for a Hebrew concept of salvation. And in fact, some well-known and influential evangelical teachers have popularized the idea that we should never use the language of law or, or the courtroom when we speak of the saving work of Christ on our behalf. In fact, I have a, in, the, in my files an article by a well-known Bible teacher who says he thinks, you know, law court language is a Greek imposition, comes from Greek thought, it's not Hebrew, and, uh, and so we're corrupting the, the message of the gospel, the meaning of the atonement by importing legal language into it. But the Apostle John, right here in our text, is deliberately using courtroom terminology. He is portraying Christ as our advocate, essentially an attorney who pleads our case in God's hall of justice And it is, I I grant you, a surprising picture of our salvation, but it's a vivid reminder that our redemption from sin is all about God's justice. We're saved by legal means in a way that magnifies the justice of God. So let that sink into your consciousness. And I want to stress it because 
a lot of people completely misunderstand salvation, what it's all about. They think of divine forgiveness as something that simply overturns justice or sets it aside as if God's mercy would nullify his justice. Like, okay, I don't have to punish sin because I'm so kind. That's how they think God thinks, how the mind of God works, and it's not. They're thinking as if God's love defeated and revoked his hatred of sin, but it doesn't. In other words, people tend to think that salvation is grounded only in the love and the mercy and the goodness of God, as if he you know, just decided to forego the due penalty of sin and wipe out the record of our wrongdoing and nullify the claims of justice against us just because his love was so great that it simply overwhelmed his holy hatred of sin. That is, I think, how most people think of God. Well, God is love, so he won't punish sin. That's an erroneous view, and in fact, it's one of the main errors of the heresy, the arch-heresy, known as Socinianism. The original Socinians, we talked about them 30 years ago, so I don't expect any of you to remember it, but the original Socinians were 16th century heretics who denied that God demands any kind of payment or punishment for sin as a prerequisite to forgiveness. Because this was their argument. They said if, if that God forgives our sin only out of the bounty of his kindness alone, because they argued that if, if God demanded an atonement, an expiation, a payment, a, a reprisal for our sin, any kind of punishment, if he really demanded that, then really forgiveness isn't really forgiveness when he absolves us. The price has been paid. It isn't forgiven. So they claimed that either sin could be forgiven or it could be atoned for, but not both. And so they define forgiveness in a way that contradicts and contravenes divine justice. They were essentially teaching that God cannot maintain the demands of his justice and be a forgiving God at the same time. They thought of forgiveness and justice as incompatible ideas. Forgiveness, by their definition, simply meant the nullification of the demands of justice. Now, I hope you can see the folly of that view. It essentially argues that God cannot possibly be just and merciful at the same time. Because it imagines that God's righteousness and the notion of peace and goodwill toward men, these are incompatible concepts. God is either righteous or he's propitious towards people, sinners. It supposes that God just cannot be forgiving unless he relinquishes the demands of divine justice. But one of the most glorious truths of the gospel, and in fact, I would argue you don't understand the gospel very well unless you get this, one of the most glorious truths is that God saves us in a way that upholds his justice perfectly. Psalm 85, verse 10, Loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. And the gospel shows how that came to pass, that, that justice was neither compromised nor set aside in the forgiveness of our sins, but instead, because of the atoning work of Christ, God's justice was fully satisfied. And our salvation is therefore grounded in the justice of God as well as in his mercy. Yeah, his love and mercy and kindness and all that figure into the equation. 
But that's not the only ground of our forgiveness. His justice is also satisfied. Romans 3.26 again. God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Because you see, if you overthrow justice, you obliterate righteousness. Those two words in the original language are really synonymous. Justice and righteousness, the same thing. And that's what the apostle Paul meant when he said in Romans 1.17 that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. It's also what the Apostle John means to stress right here in this context when he says in verse 9 of chapter 1 that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us, to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. God washes our guilt away, but he doesn't merely set aside justice and forgive us out of the sheer abundance of his mercy. He forgives because it is an act of justice for him to do that. Now, there's a surprising and and wonderful paradox in that idea, because we normally think of justice as that attribute of God that demands the punishment of sin, and it is that. Justice cries out for retribution anytime a wrong is done. Proverbs 11.21, assuredly, the evil man will not go unpunished. Exodus 34, verse 7, God will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. And it would be unjust to let sin go unpunished. We understand that instinctively. You know, the truly righteous people long for God to deal with evil and evildoers. Listen to Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the first temple, 2 Chronicles 6.23. He prays, listen from heaven and act and judge your slaves, punishing the wicked by bringing his way on his own head. So he prays for punishment as a demonstration of God's righteousness. And according to Revelation 6 verse 10, the souls of those who are martyred for their faith cry out to God with a loud loud voice saying, How long, O Master, holy and true, will you not judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? It's a righteous thing to want to see evil punished, and God will judge evil, Romans 12, 19, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And godly people do look forward to that day when the judge of all the earth will judge the deeds of the wicked and purge all evil from the universe completely. He won't compromise his own, un, his own righteousness by allowing one unrighteousness to go unpunished. Jesus said there's nothing concealed that will not be revealed, nothing hidden that will not be made known. That's Matthew 10, 26 and Luke 12, verse 3. Whatever you've said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you've whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops, so that every sin, even the secret ones, will be brought out in the open and judged, and justice screams for that, the retribution of sin. And God is a God of perfect justice, so he won't let one sin go unpunished. And, uh, you know, we tend to think about those things in much too shallow a sense. We, We take God's mercy for granted. We ignore the ramifications of his holy justice. But a right view of God will always exalt his righteous hatred for sin as much as it magnifies his love and mercy. God's mercy, you know, is not some 
maudlin sentiment that causes God to forgive about, forget about his holiness and just set aside his righteous anger against sin. He doesn't do that. The demands of righteousness must be perfectly, fully, and completely satisfied before God can ever forgive sin. He can't and won't simply overlook sin as if it didn't really matter. And yet, Scripture says, he does forgive. And to me, one of the most wonderful things about the gospel is it explains how that's possible. Because Christ satisfied God's justice on behalf of those whom he saves. He bore the penalty of their sin when he died on the cross. And the gospel, therefore, declares his righteousness so that he can be both just and the justifier of everyone who has faith in Jesus. In other words, the gospel is not only a message about the love of God. It is that, but it's not only that. The gospel also magnifies God's justice as much as it magnifies his love. Again, we don't think about that, but when was the last time you, you thought about the gospel as a message about divine justice, the, the, you know, real, eternal, holy justice for sinners? I'm not talking about the warped idea of, of social justice that people today are so enthralled with, but we tend not to think of eternal justice as carefully or thoroughly as we should, invariably, when you hear the gospel preached nowadays, all of the stress is on the love of God, and his righteous abhorrence of sin is rarely even mentioned. You know, we start out, and God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And we love to talk about forgiveness, but, and that's good, but rarely is there any attention given to the fact that God demanded payment in full and if that payment had not been made, there never would be any forgiveness whatsoever. Hebrews 9.22, without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. That's the answer to the Socinian error, the idea that God will either atone for sin or forgive it, but not both. Scripture says quite the opposite, that without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. The truth is that if God's justice had not been fully satisfied, our salvation wouldn't be possible at all. We would be damned forever without any hope of mercy. But because Christ has paid the price, God's forgiveness for those who believe is actually an act of his justice. It's an expression of his righteousness. And that's why the Apostle John uses all this courtroom terminology. He is highlighting the fact that our salvation is grounded in the justice of God. Chapter 1, verse 9, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sin. And then our verse, verse 1 of chapter 2, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And again, there's a marvelous paradox in this. We think of justice as that which screams for our punishment, but we learn from the gospel that God has turned justice into something that cries out for mercy which is really a profound thought when you think of it. You know, this was the very issue that opened Martin Luther's eyes to the gospel. He was studying Romans 1, and Luther said he couldn't get past verse 17. He read where Paul says the gospel reveals the righteousness of God, and he, he was unable to read any further. He said it made him angry. He said, he literally said he hated the apostle Paul for writing that verse because 
the gospel is supposed to be good news, but Paul says it reveals the righteousness of God, and Luther could only think of righteousness as something that demands the punishment of sinners. How's that good news, he thought. But finally he realized Paul is talking about a totally different aspect of God's righteousness. In fact, Paul was describing this very quality of divine justice that demands the salvation of believers. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And Luther said it was as if a window to heaven had been opened for him because he suddenly saw God's righteousness in a completely different light, realizing for believers, God's righteousness is a positive thing. And he came to love that attribute of God, God's righteousness that he had previously hated. And there's an important point in all of this. Unless you see that the justice of God is just as important as his mercy in the process of obtaining our salvation, unless you give equal weight to, to those two aspects of God's character, then you won't love his righteousness the way you should. But if you understand that salvation not only fulfills divine mercy, but it also magnifies divine righteousness, that fact alone will be a powerful deterrent to sin in your life. And John recognizes that here. Look at the verse again. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. It's an encouragement not to sin. I'm going to come back to that idea before we close. But I want to take you this morning into the viewing gallery of heaven's hall of justice so that we can examine this paradox of divine justice and see it up close. And I'm going to call your attention to three surprising features in the courtroom scene that I think astonish me. Here are three features that are not what you would expect to find in a scenario where the first concern is the justice of God. Three surprising things. The advocate, which is Christ. The verdict, not guilty. And then the, the rehabilitation of the guilty person. What effect this has on the, on the person who comes to faith. So let's look at these individually first. And, uh, and I'll highlight these three surprises. First is the advocate, Christ himself. And that's remarkable for several reasons. First of all, as I said at the beginning, it's extraordinary to think of Christ in the role of our heavenly advocate, interceding with us, interceding for us with God and arguing in our favor on the basis of divine justice. And that's how he pleads our case. That is how he speaks on our behalf. He, he represents us before the throne of divine justice, and he makes the case that justice, God's justice, demands our pardon. You, you couldn't get a better advocate to plead your case. The, the Greek word translated advocate there is parakletos, and it literally means one who is called alongside. It has the idea of an intercessor on our behalf. It also can convey the notion of one who consoles us, a comforter. And as you probably know, that's the very same word that's used of the Holy Spirit in John 14, 16, the paraclete, the one who's called alongside us to comfort us. That's the Holy Spirit as well, where Jesus promises to send the comforter. He uses that word, the parakletos someone who is called alongside us to assist us. 
And so the Holy Spirit indwells us as our parakletos here on earth, while Jesus is interceding for us as our parakletos in the very throne room of God. And, and in fact, if you're like me, I'm not fond of courtroom scenes and uh, lawyers and law. I, just, I admit it. Not that I dislike lawyers. I just don't like legal processes. They're always so convoluted and all that. But the truth is, if you ever get hauled into court to answer charges against you, one of the things you'll discover is there is no more comforting presence in the courtroom than the attorney who speaks on your behalf. I mean, he sits right next to you, he argues your case, and he does it with more eloquence and authority than you could ever be able to muster on your own. And he takes your side completely, without reservation. He is the friendliest face in the courtroom when he looks at you or speaks to you, and especially when he speaks to the court on your behalf. Most of all, he is the determined adversary of anyone who has brought charges against you. That is precisely the role Christ plays for us in heaven. It's a fascinating idea. Now, I've been fortunate enough that in my whole life, I've only once needed to hire an attorney to plead my case against an adversary who claimed that I was guilty, I was wrong. I was in my 20s at the time, and I was admittedly naive and and I was, I'd done some business with a company in New York City that defrauded me and deceived me into an unjust contract. Their whole deal was fraudulent from the start. And the moment I claimed that the terms of the contract had been misrepresented to me, the company sent me this letter, a threatening letter from a well-known New York law firm saying that if I made any attempt to get out of their contract, they were going to sue me and basically take away everything I owned, which at the time really didn't amount to much. But, <laughs> but it was pretty scary nonetheless. And so I tried to reason with them kindly, politely for several weeks. I wrote pleading letters and explained that their salesperson hadn't told me the truth. And, and all my efforts did absolutely nothing to get those lawyers off my back. And in fact, they actually, when they saw I was sort of representing myself, they stepped up their efforts to intimidate me. And that, so their demands became more urgent and more menacing. And, and when I had exhausted every plea of my own uh, that I could think of, uh, the effect only of all of it was to increase the threat that they posed to me. I, I would lay awake nights worrying about what would happen if this big New York law firm actually served me a court summons. I'd have to go to New York to defend myself. And, and I felt, no, I really was utterly helpless and powerless and defenseless. And so at a, the urging of a friend, I finally went to see an attorney that he recommended to me. And this guy looked at the contract and he listened to my story and he agreed that I had been defrauded. All he did was write a very firmly worded letter on my behalf back to these New York lawyers. And, and I'll tell you, his letter was shorter and much less polite than all of the letters I had already written to this company. But he cited legal statutes and he ordered them to cease and desist. And 
you know what? Within 24 hours, they released me from their contract. They wrote me a letter of apology, and they refunded everything that I had already paid them. In effect, they paid me money to drop the matter. Why? Because that attorney spoke with authority. He knew the law. He knew what justice demanded better than I did, and he dismantled the charges of my accusers and turned the force of the law against them. And he used all of that clout on my behalf. I was the beneficiary of his pleading on my behalf. Here's the best part. When that company wrote, when they're committing this fraud, they wrote their letter of apology. It was me they addressed the letter to, not my advocate. They apologized to me, not to him, and it was amazing how they suddenly started treating me with respect, because frankly, I didn't deserve much respect, but that attorney sure did, but they showed me that respect because I had an advocate who knew the law, and I'll tell you, I liked that lawyer. <laughs> I think he charged me, this was back in the 1970s, he charged me like $50 for writing one letter. And I think he dictated it off the top of his head while I was sitting there. It took him less than 10 minutes to do it. But I was never so happy to pay a guy 50 bucks in all my life. And if you're ever in a situation like that, you probably think twice before you tell any lawyer jokes. Especially if you get the right advocate. And of course, there's no better advocate than Jesus. There's no one who can argue more powerfully or more persuasively than him. He never loses a case. And notice with whom he pleads. According to this verse, he is our advocate with the Father. He pleads our case before the Father. Now, don't get the idea that he's like a lawyer standing before a harsh and unwilling magistrate. He pleads with a loving Father. And so in this courtroom, it's not only our advocate who is kindly disposed towards us, but the judge is really on our side as well. You know, some people imagine that Christ is sympathetic to us, but the Father is stern and unforgiving, and so that's why Christ has to plead with him in order to overcome the hostility of a righteous God against us, as if God is opposed to us, and he's insisting on retribution, and Christ needs to intercede desperately and urgently on our behalf to change the Father's attitude towards us and overcome this heavenly judge's hostility against our sin. If that's the way you picture the advocacy of Christ, you've got to get that idea out of your mind because in this heavenly court of justice, the judge is already predisposed to forgive. He's, he's eager for our acquittal as the advocate who is defending us. And in fact, it's he, the judge, the father, who sent the son to become our savior. 1 John 4.10 in this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So the father and his son, our advocate, are both inclined towards mercy. Psalm 130, verse 7, with Yahweh there is loving kindness and with him is abundant redemption. And the psalmist prayed in uh, Psalm 86, verse 5, you, Lord, are good and by nature forgiving and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. And then down in verse 15 of that same psalm, he adds, You, O Lord, are a compassionate, are compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. 
And Isaiah 55, verse 7 says, God will abundantly pardon. In fact, everywhere in Scripture, I could keep reading texts for a long time here. Scripture consistently portrays God as eager to forgive, willing to forgive, not delighting in the destruction of the wicked, but pleading with sinners to repent and be reconciled to him. And the obstacle, viewed from our perspective, is justice. How is it just to forgive sin? And again, the sacrifice of Christ answers that question. Look at the verse after our verse, verse 2, 1 John chapter 2. He himself is the propitiation for our sins. And chapter 1, verse 7, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. It's fair to ask if God is, he loves us, he's willing to be merciful to us, Christ has already paid the debt that is demanded by justice, why, why is it even necessary for anyone to plead with the Father on our behalf? Why would Christ have to plead our case before the Father? Why do we need a heavenly advocate? Because there is one who accuses us, Satan, who in Revelation 12.10 is called the accuser of the brethren. He is constantly bringing charges against us in the court of God. You see a little picture of that in the opening chapters of the book of Job. But in fact, listen to the verse that calls him the accuser of the brethren, Revelation 12, verse 10. It's just describing the drama in heaven at the end of the age. And the Apostle John writes it like this. He says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. So you get that. That's talking about the end of the age when Satan is destroyed. But in the meantime, right now, he is constantly, nonstop, day and night, while you're sleeping and while you're awake, he is arguing the case against you in front of the judge of all the universe. He's accusing you. He's bringing the list of your transgressions before the throne of God and demanding that you be punished for your wrongdoing. And his aim is the destruction of your soul. But in response, Christ argues your case. And he, he does it not so that he can change the mind of the heavenly judge, because remember, God, the judge, is already willing to be merciful and forgiving towards you if you're in Christ. So Christ pleads your case in order to answer the argument of the accuser, in order to quiet the one who speaks against you, in order to defeat and put to silence the great enemy of your soul, just as Satan pleads the case against you day and night, you have a tireless advocate who never stops championing your cause. That's what the intercessory work of Christ is all about. He's pleading your case, and according to Hebrews 7.25, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He never rests. He never takes a recess. He is constantly answering charges against you in a way that utterly overpowers and overwhelms the adversary and utterly silences his complaints. 
And here's another remarkable thing about this heavenly advocate. He is the only defense attorney in the history of jurisprudence who will take your case only if you fully confess your guilt up front. If you try to cover your guilt or refuse to confess that you are utterly and completely unworthy of of forgiveness and worthy of condemnation, then you can't have him as your advocate. Look back at chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. He says it three times. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So before he will ever accept you as a client, you must first bring your sins to light and confess them freely and fully to him. Verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So you have to confess your guilt to him or he won't have you as a client. So now think about this. Every person whom this heavenly advocate speaks for is guilty and has already confessed his guilt before the case ever even comes before the judge, basically. And yet, here's the most remarkable thing of all of this. This master attorney, this advocate who pleads your case, he never fails to win an acquittal. And that's the second surprising feature of this passage I want you to see, the verdict. The verdict. It's always not guilty. One lawyer here who never loses a case, no matter how guilty and sin-stained they are, his clients never face the court's condemnation. Never. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's Romans 8.1. He has turned justice itself in our favor. And again, it's justice. It's not an injustice, but justice for us to be acquitted. Verse 9 of chapter 1, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive. He's our advocate. Chapter 2, verse 1, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So it's righteous what he's doing, even though he, he gets a not guilty verdict for every guilty client that he has. And the verdict is a full pardon. God who is light and in whom is no darkness at all, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And, and the verdict is immediate acquittal and a full, it's not a conditional pardon. It is an immediate, full, free pardon from all of our sins on the principles of justice alone, without compromising God's righteousness in the least. And so in the end, the judge is both just and the justifier of the one who believes in Jesus. Romans 3.26 again. It's really an amazing turn of justice. Now, bear in mind why all of this is possible. It's because the advocate himself has already paid the penalty of sin on our behalf. Verse 3, he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And by the way, don't be intimidated by that word propitiation. It simply means that Christ, on our behalf, has fully satisfied justice and therefore turned away the wrath of God against our sin. 
He's paid the full penalty of sin. Before our case is ever brought before the throne, it's been paid. In fact, it would be unjust if we were asked to pay the penalty a second time. And so Christ gains our acquittal by pleading that justice has already been served. The penalty is already paid in full. We sing about it. He shows his wounded hands and names me as his own. Who wouldn't want him as an advocate? And it's unfortunate, really, that this principle of propitiation doesn't get more emphasis these days in our thinking about salvation. It's rarely mentioned in in what passes for preaching in most of the evangelical world today, because as I said earlier, the, the stress is always on the mercy and loving kindness of God, and that's certainly an important principle. It was God's love that moved him to send his own son to be a sacrifice for sin so that forgiveness would be possible. But forgiveness would not be possible on the ground of God's love alone, because he is also a righteous judge, and he cannot simply turn his head and look away from our sin and act like it never happened. He can't overlook sin and pretend that he is righteous while he's overlooking unrighteousness. Something must be done about sin. There's a price that must be paid. The principle of justice has to be satisfied because if God simply ignored our sin, he'd be an accessory after the fact, basically. He, 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 justice would be fatally compromised. God's own holiness would be discredited. Because after all, God instantly condemned the evil, the, the, the devil and the angels when they fell, right? He cast them out of heaven forever in an instant. He, he will one day bind them and cast them into the lake of fire where they will reap the wages of their sin for all eternity. How then could a God whose, whose standards of justice are that high, how could he simply excuse the sins of humanity and exact no price for the sin of Adam and everyone who's followed him? Someone has to pay, and it, it had to be a man who paid, a human being. And not only that, if a man were to pay the penalty of sin on behalf of others, it had to be a man who had no sins of his own to atone for. And for that very reason, Christ became a man, the perfect man, perfect in righteousness, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, according to Hebrews 7.26. And he paid an infinite price, bearing what only incarnate God could bear, the full wrath of God against sin. He bore the equivalent of eternal torment in hell forever on behalf of multitudes who could never afford to pay such a high price for themselves. That's the true meaning of the cross. Christ suffered and died under the weight of a punishment that is inconceivable in human terms. So how did he pay that price? Was it merely by being flogged and spat upon and tortured and beaten by men who were wicked and ruthless and without mercy? Yeah, it involved that, but it was not only that. The physical sufferings of the cross were really just an infinitesimal fraction of the pain Christ suffered, the bleeding, the thirst, the pain, the bones out of joint, the stinging whips, the, the cruel nails, all of that combined may appear to be pain enough, 
In fact, those things, I would guess, certainly gave him more earthly pain than any man can be reasonably expected to bear. But still, that alone would not have been enough to atone for sin. And in fact, the physical trauma was only a minuscule fraction, a token of the real sufferings of Christ. Because as that earthly drama played out on a Roman cross, a far more severe kind of suffering was afflicting the soul of Christ in the spiritual realm because he received the full weight of divine wrath for all the sins of all people, all his people of all time. God poured out his holy wrath against the sins of every believer in the person of his own son. And in fact, several centuries before the crucifixion, the prophet Isaiah was given a glimpse of the atoning work of Christ And as he looked at the event prophetically and saw the crucifixion from heaven's perspective, this is what he wrote, Isaiah 53, verse 10, Yahweh was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Yahweh put him to grief. It wasn't just the executioners from Rome. But God did this. And in fact, that same verse speaks of the soul of Christ as a guilt offering. And Isaiah is telling us that God himself punished Christ for our sins. Again, in Isaiah's words, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But Yahweh has caused the iniquity of all of us to fall on him. That's verse 6 of that same prophetic description of the cross in Isaiah 53. And what it's telling us is that Christ bore an infinite amount of punishment. He suffered more of the wrath of God than you or I would ever feel, even if you spent the rest of eternity in the torments of hell. And he did that to pay for the sins of everyone who would ever believe. And having already suffered so much, inconceivable in our minds, he can now plead our case before God in perfect righteousness. He can be an advocate before the throne of divine justice on behalf of guilty, hopeless sinners, the ones he died for, he can gain their full acquittal because justice has already been completely satisfied through his perfect sacrifice. That's an important truth to keep in mind as as we consider the forgiveness of God. You know, we live in a a society where criminals get off scot-free all the time, and more and more these days, it seems. You can commit crimes and really not even be not even be truly arrested for it. Criminals get off on technicalities. They are acquitted by unjust judges and stupid juries and crooked lawyers. And we look at that with resentment, rightfully so, because it is a horrible miscarriage of justice. But even Satan himself can't complain of any injustice in the court of God because... The price of justice has been satisfied and paid in full already. So even though sinners are acquitted all the time, there's no injustice taking place. If you're in Christ, you have a perfect advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And that means you can go boldly before the throne of grace 
and be fully assured that you will find grace to help in time of need. You can live with full confidence that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You can rest in the promise that you will not come into condemnation, but you've already passed from death unto life. If you're not yet in Christ, or if you're unsure of your status with him, I urge you to flee to him for mercy. And you can do that even now where you sit. You can confess your sin. Don't try to cover it up, but confess it to God. Ask the Spirit of God to break your heart over your sin so that you can see it the way God sees it, that it's abhorrent and loathsome and exceedingly sinful. And you have God's own inviolable promise that if you confess your sin and seek his mercy, he will forgive, and he's both faithful and just to do that. So now, I want to turn your attention to a third remarkable feature of this passage, and it has to do with the rehabilitation of the guilty person. What is the effect of this on the believing sinner? And the answer is, Christ's work on the cross has gained for us much more than merely an acquittal for our sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that this same principle of perfect justice that gains our pardon, it has a built-in remedy for our sinful tendencies. It's a motive not to sin. And more than that, this remarkable justice doesn't merely gain us a not guilty verdict in the courtroom of God. It doesn't simply wash away the guilt of sin. It does do that, but it does more. It also purifies us and liberates us from the bondage of sin itself. It cleanses us from the stain of sin, and it enables us to overcome the love of sin, and it gives us an incentive to keep from sinning. And again, that's the opening phrase of our verse. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. This is an amazing aspect of John's argument here, and in a way it's, it's unfortunate, I think, that when the books of Scripture were divided into verses and chapters, this is, this is one of my least favorite chapter breaks. That somebody decided to put a new chapter division in here because this statement has to be considered in the context of what has gone immediately before. Chapter 1, three times the apostle reminds us that we are guilty sinners and we must confess this. Verse 6, if we say that we have no fellowship with him, or say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And then verse 9 contains that familiar lavish prop, uh, promise of full forgiveness. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. Now, there have always been people who think that the doctrine that John sets forth here is hazardous to a holy walk. I mean, even today there are people who try to explain away or diminish the force of this promise of free forgiveness. They think it's a, a disincentive to holiness. If forgiveness is free, you know, Paul raises this problem in, in Romans 6, then why not continue in sin that grace may abound? And uh, oddly enough, people who hold this view, who think that's, that's 
not safe. It's not a safe view to teach people that their sins are freely forgiven. People who hold that view typically fall into a kind of perfectionism where they teach that it's possible if you exert enough effort and, and you exercise enough willpower, it's possible that you can abstain from sin completely and attain a kind of perfection. That's built into some Wesleyan theology, for example. Finney taught that. Perfectionism. And you can see, as you see, that turns John's message on its head because anyone who thinks he has attained any degree of perfection is in the very situation John condemns in chapter 8 of verse 1, saying they have no sin. But the message and the context is quite clear. We sin. We all sin. We sin often, and we sin miserably, and we are to confess our sinfulness before God. And it is possible, and it sometimes happens, that a, a carnal mind gets a hold of this truth and thinks, I can justify an unbroken continuance in sin. You've, you've all undoubtedly encountered antinomians at some point who think, well, this doctrine means I really don't have to worry about my sin. In fact, I know people who turn this text on its head and say, where John says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive. They would say, well, that's only for unbelievers. Believers don't need to confess their sins because we're already declared just before God, which turns the whole idea on its head. But it is it does happen that people abuse this truth and, and because after all, if I do sin and God forgives sin, then why not just give it up and sin as much as we can so that grace may abound? Again, Paul anticipates that argument at the start of Romans 6. He recognizes that is one of the ways people pervert the doctrine of justification by faith. And here, the Apostle John is saying the same thing. When Paul raises that issue in Romans 6, he says, why not continue in sin that grace may abound? And he answers immediately, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin continue in it? And the Apostle John is saying exactly the same thing. And in fact, he says, these are truths that should keep us from sin. Far from thinking that the freeness of God's grace would ever lead a redeemed person to want to sin more. He says the principle of free forgiveness is the very doctrine that should keep us from sin. Because if you think free grace means license to sin, you need to examine yourself to see whether you're really in the faith. Because the conscience revolts at such an abuse of divine mercy, especially when we realize what an unthinkably cruel price Christ paid for our sins. Shall we hate him because he's kind to us? Shall we curse him because he blesses us? What kind of monstrous culprit would use the goodness of God as an excuse to dishonor him with sin. Would we crucify Christ afresh and put him to an open shame? No one who really loves him and truly believes in him could ever treat his loving kindness with that kind of wicked contempt and just go blithely on, unconvicted, committing sin. The truth is that those of us who know him, those of us who benefit so immeasurably from his pleading before the throne of God on our behalf, we don't need any nobler argument for holiness than the richness of God's mercy to us. He lives forever to make intercession 
He's pleading our cause before the Father's throne at this very moment. And if that doesn't move your heart with a passionate yearning to serve and honor Him with your life, then your heart is cold and dead. And that's the very sin you need to confess today so that He may forgive you and cleanse you from that unrighteousness. I hope you'll think these things through carefully and contemplate the amazing justice that provides forgiveness and cleansing and let these truths penetrate your soul and set your heart on fire with a zeal for the righteousness of God because it's the same righteousness that turns divine justice in your favor and gives you a right standing before the throne here and now and also guarantees you an eternity of unimaginable blessing, there is no stronger argument for holiness than that. Let's pray. Father, we do confess that we are hopeless sinners. We are powerless to save ourselves. We thank you for sending Christ to be not only the propitiation for our sins, but also our heavenly advocate. Fill our hearts with gratitude and praise, and may we truly love your righteousness. May the knowledge that divine justice guarantees our salvation, may that move us to live in righteousness. For the glory of Christ, our advocate, we pray in his name. Amen. You have been listening to pastor and teacher Phil Johnson. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by Phil Johnson, all rights reserved.